Hello, friends. This is Cliff Knight from Equippers International. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We want to lift up Jesus and provide a place for you to learn more about Him and to grow in your relationship with Him. If you find the podcast helpful, feel free to share it with others. We believe it will be a source of blessing and encouragement, and you will be strengthened in your relationship with Jesus. Hello, welcome back to the Equippers International Podcast. We're studying the book of Romans together, and we're in chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15 for today's episode. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation." All right, very interesting paragraph. We're just going to pick it apart a little bit in this episode. There's a couple of things that I want us to notice. One is Paul's going to begin to drive into the distinction between the promise and the law. Now, he started the chapter by focusing on the faith of Abraham and how important the faith was. And remember, we talked extensively about Abraham's experience whereby he was declared as righteous before God because of his faith, which he had before he was ever circumcised. So God made a promise. We're going to look in this episode about the importance of the promise, and we're also going to look a little bit about Paul's statement in verse 15 about the law, which brings about wrath, and where there is no law, there also is no violation. We're going to just touch on that point because we're going to get into it in detail in Romans chapter 7. But let's back up a little bit there. In verse 13, let's talk about what Paul says now. He says the promise to Abraham or to his descendants. Remember, this word descendants, as it was in the book of Genesis, in every occasion, it's always in the singular. Now, it could be talking about a collective group of people in the singular form. But if we read the New Testament and allow Paul's narrative of Abraham and quoting and referencing these verses in Genesis many times, he makes it very clear that the descendants of Abraham as a collective group are all those who have faith in Christ and as an individual seed, it is specifically Christ. And I love what he says in this verse because he says that the promise given to Abraham and to his seed that he would be heir of the world. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. It's a pretty all-encompassing statement to say that someone is the heir of the world. Now, I don't believe that Paul's making this statement as the heir of the world to apply to necessarily just Abraham and the promise that God made to him in Genesis 17 that he would make him the father of many nations. It's something altogether different to say that somebody's going to inherit the entire world. Now, we know a little bit of background. The word world in the New Testament can also refer more to the known world of that time. So somebody would say maybe 
that he went throughout the world, that doesn't mean that he necessarily went around the whole globe. Always use the illustration of Muhammad Ali. He was famous as the boxer and the champion of the world to say that I am the champion of the world. It doesn't mean that he fought every single human in the world, but based on the World Boxing Association and the process of fighting fighters and climbing to a position of being the best, he could say he is the best in the world. This might be the way that Paul's using the word, but it might also be that he's talking about a more totally inclusive air of all things. And we know that the only person that's going to inherit the world to which the world already belongs is Christ because he is the maker of all the world and he upholds all the things in the world by the word of his power. And he is the one that is going to inherit all things. So I think it's clear that Paul is alluding here to Jesus as the seed who is the heir of the whole world. And then he goes on to say that the promise was not through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Here he's hammering faith again, and he's making it clear that the promise made to Abraham and the inheritance was based on faith. Because, he says in verse 14, if those who are of the law are actually heirs, then faith has been made void and the promise is nullified. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the promise It's so important that we understand that God's gospel, the good news of God for all humanity, that they might be forgiven of sin, brought into a right relationship with God, declared as righteous, also brought into an experience of a completely new nature, free from sin, free from the law, free to live for the glory of God. That whole experience is brought about by faith and not by the law. Because, Paul says, if it happened by law, then the promise would be nullified. Now, I want to read a scripture in the book of Hebrews so we can see how important it is to understand the role of promise in God's economy. In Hebrews chapter 6, I want to read this entire passage starting in verse 13. It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Now, this is Paul's way of saying that God was swearing. He was actually taking an oath when he says, I will do this. Similar to when you take the stand as a witness in a court of law. It says, will you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? And you say, I will. You make an oath to tell the truth. And this is exactly what God did. He said, I will surely bless you and surely multiply you. And verse 15, and so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, speaking of Abraham. For men swear by one greater, and with them an oath is confirmed as an end of every dispute. Verse 17, And in the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, I want to focus on this phrase in verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What were the two things which made it impossible for God to lie? One, he made a promise. And two, he swore by the promise. He made an oath that he would not break his promise. Now, the reason why Paul draws a contradiction or a contrast between the promise and the law is because God did not make a promise and an oath when he gave the law to the children of Israel. It was a bilateral covenant. We've talked about this before, in which there were stipulations that required the Israelites to obey the law, and that if they did, they would receive the benefit of the blessing. If they did not obey the law, the covenant would eventually be nullified and they would be cursed. And this is exactly what happened in the old covenant. This is why God had to make a new covenant with the house of Israel because they broke the old one. Now there's much to say about that and we'll have to leave that for another discussion. But I want us to focus specifically on the importance of the promise and the oath because Paul is now making it very clear that no one can come with an argument that the law and the works of the law in any way, shape, or form could be greater than the promise given to Abraham. Because if any righteousness could be imputed to man through the works of the law, then Paul says that faith is made void and the promise is nullified. And that is an absolute impossibility with God because it is impossible for God to lie. Goes on to say in verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now this opens up a very profound truth and one that we're gonna spend a lot of time on when we get to Romans chapter seven, but I just wanna introduce it now because I think if we understand this truth and put the law in the proper context, it really brings a lot of freedom in our relationship with God. Because here's the truth. When God brought in the law, the scripture tells us specifically in Galatians, Paul talks about it, but in other places in Romans chapter seven, it says that sin took opportunity through the commandment to cause us to commit sins. So the power of sin works through the commandment. And you say, why in the world would God do this? Well, it's one of those mysteries in the economy of God. Ultimately, the answer is God was busy leading all men to Christ because he used the law as the means. Paul talks about it being a tutor. It's teaching men how they need Christ so that when they come to faith in Christ, they no longer need the law. And so the law is actually the vehicle through which sin operates. Now, the converse is true. What Paul's saying is if there is no law, then there is no violation. I use a simple illustration of the speed limit as a law. If you have a license to drive and you go out on any road, no matter what country in the world you live, there's a posted speed limit. And when you go over that speed limit, that law of the speed of the road, you are violating the law. 
and the policeman has a legal right to give you a citation. Now, if any government would choose to remove the law of speeding from the civil law of their country and you went out on the road, at what speed would you be violating the law? Well, you wouldn't. A simple example of this is the Autobahn in Germany. As far as I understand, there are sections of the Autobahn where there is no posted speed limit. And if you've ever driven on those areas, you know there are some people that travel at incredible speeds. And those people are not breaking the law because there is no posted law of speed on those roads. And this is exactly what Paul's saying. Now, he throws this comment in, I believe, in preparation for some things he's getting ready to say in later chapters in Romans. And I'm going to leave the discussion in detail for that when we get there. But he's just introducing this idea that the law brings about wrath. It does not bring about righteousness. This is what Paul's contrasting. Faith in Christ based on the promise given to Abraham 430 years before the law was ever given to Moses on Mount Sinai, there was a promise that the believers would be blessed and then they would be heirs with Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's going to tell us later in Romans chapter 8, that we are heirs with Christ because our faith makes us sons and daughters of God. And so we inherit everything that Christ inherits. So there's beautiful discussions to come in the book of Romans, but Paul's just methodically laying down his presentation of these very important truths. So I want you to contemplate this morning on the extreme importance of God making a promise and swearing by it, whereby he could never lie And that promise can never be nullified because he has established faith as the foundational principle by which we receive righteousness from him. So be strong and courageous and love Jesus more. 